The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. by Tim LaHaye and Jerry The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy Gavin Russell. And we are here to give you our summation of book, what is it, seven? Yeah, I think we're in, yeah, <laughs> Mark, Mark is eight, I just got done with Mark today. So yes, book seven. Book seven, the indwelling, the beast takes possession. <sighs> All right, man. So I think going into this, it's probably pretty clear our favorite yeah it wasn't the worst it, it it was no tribulation force but uh it definitely it was no it was no assassins and honestly like there's i don't know this is this is kind of like a mid-tier see you kind of got some assassins vibes going into this i remember you saying like oh this is kind of cool yeah I the first the first third kind of had like it was like because you it was just picking up right after the assassination so obviously some of that that feel is going to carry over but once we got later in the week <laughs> i think yeah i think it was definitely swimming in assassins wake you yeah know what i mean because I think Assassins was our first four star, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, or four horsemen, yeah. rather. Let's break it down and kind of talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, some of the stuff we took away and learned from this one, especially about Jerry and Tim and about everything that was going on at the time that this was written. Because I went ahead and did a little research going into this. This was written or published in May of 2000. Yes. So the actual turning of the millennium had happened at that point. And I don't know, were you really cognizant of the rapture hysteria around the Y2K stuff? I was four. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I was, no, I was three. All right. Yeah. So probably that's going to be a no. Yeah, no. All right. So I was 10. No, I was nine. I remember New Year's Eve um, of 1999. And I remember all the lead up to it. Um, I actually had a conversation with my parents the other night, kind of talking about some of this stuff. One of the wacko things that my dad mentioned, because the crux of the conversation was, can you tell me some of the wacko things that you look back on now that people around you in church kind of tried to introduce you to? And he was like, what, besides those books? (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but largely the Y2K stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, He said that there was a whole lot of anxiety, a lot of kind of an undefined anxiety. You know what I mean? What's going to happen? What's the change going to be? This is the turning of an age. Obviously, for those of you who are too young to remember the Y2K thing, I would say ask your parents, but I'll just give you the short version that basically every computer in the world wasn't programmed and prepped for when the dial turned over from 1999 to 2000. There were a lot of people that thought 
that when that dial turned over, the computers were going to think it was 1900 and then they were all going to their pants and explode, <laughs> basically. That's so dumb looking it back on it now. the dumbest thing. Now, I know that there was a little bit of that in a couple of instances, but for the most part, all of it got future-proofed, all of it got updated. Like, it's not hard to push out updates, but that did not stop the world from panicking. Mm-hmm. It was not like a worldwide Orson Welles War of the Worlds kind of panic, you know? But people were stockpiling food and water and ammunition and all this stuff. And as you guys have learned from the show, so much of this prepper culture dovetails perfectly with the rapture culture. We've had this conversation about how preppers and even Jerry and Tim kind of acknowledging prepper culture in the books a little bit means that there's sort of a tacit alliance between those crowds of people yeah so your your patriot militia people your gun people your prepper people all of them kind of have a weird doomsday fantasy yeah and so that fits really nicely within that left behind framework so a lot of the buzz especially around christian circles with people who were a little more susceptible to kind of the hype and the hysteria behind it they were like, oh, the rapture's gonna happen. You know, yeah. I remember seeing it like checkout stands at like not just Christian bookstores, but also grocery stores and stuff of there being like tabloids that were like, the rapture will happen New Year's Day of 2000. I saw a tad of this, and like the only comparable event I can have to this is during 2012. It was much lesser because a lot of people I think saw through it as like, okay, this is like an arbitrary year. But the, some of the hysteria that was fueled through like the media of like, all oh, world's ending in 2012, that carried over too, again, to these circles. Yeah, and I will say... From my perspective, what I think that the reasoning was behind 2012 not being as hyped as 2000, which was as soon as you dug one level deep to see where the 2012 idea came from and they found out that it was Mayan in origin, every white Christian who would have otherwise believed it went, well, you don't know Jesus. (laughs) So, and they just sort of tossed it out. They're like, ah, never mind. Yeah. If like, you know, St. Augustine or something had said something about 2012, they would have been like, oh no. <laughs> it's a coming. Yeah, I know. Or if like like Dwight Moody or something had said something about it, you know, but maybe even to a degree, like if Nostradamus said something. Maybe Nostradamus, because then at least you get European. Yeah. And and oh, oh okay, he's more of a reliable source then. <laughs> we weren't trying to colonize them, so it's all right. Right. <laughs> I I truly believe from at least what I observed, that was the reason why there wasn't as much Christian panic specifically about 2012. Mm-hmm. But when we look at this in that same context, this is probably the prelude to the biggest change we've seen so far, because you and I have talked about the left behind cycle. This fits very firmly in the cataclysm yeah. cycle. And- so this is like your there's been a sea change. The world is now going to alter for the characters going forward. Yeah, and I won't go too far into that. As reading Mark, um, Mark does kind of like that's the uphill of like the left behind cycle again, where the change is happening that you get very invested in it um, as opposed to like the prelude before the change. Yeah, exactly. With all that out of the way and kind of talking about the climate around the book, what was the narrative like for you? Because I heard you say earlier... You liked it at the beginning. It started to fall off. Where okay, are we so at it, eh, here and there. Like the first, the the first uh, third was pretty good. Towards the end of that third, first third, it started to drop off. The 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 middle part 
kind of uh, not as impressive, but then once you get to the third part, it's like, okay, this is definitely the prelude to Mark. Satan is literally indwelling Carpathia, shooting lightning. Okay, this is good. We get in this book some of the best uh, supernatural stuff, and that's usually some of the stuff I like the most. And initially, all of this introduction of that was an, kind of leading me like, okay, this is on the same level as Assassins. Like, you get Zion astral projecting and seeing angels. You got Carpathia coming back, shooting lightning and stuff. You got Leon doing, ma like, black magic on CNN. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Calling down fire from heaven, literally. Yeah. Yeah, so you got, and also just like, you know, this is the whole statue subplot um, where, you know, Guy Blod's building a statue, even though it's corny. I'm like, okay, give me Guy. Uh, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> give me this, um, this perfect man. God. Okay, so some of this stuff did work for you, but it sounds to me like a lot of it didn't. What didn't work for you? Like, Let's where did you find yourself being like, I want to put this book down? Uh, one, just a lot of the inner cutting. Um, kind of like, cause they would, they would focus on something cool and then they would go to like something unrelated that just seemed like filler, like just some characters traveling. And even when they're traveling, they're not really talking about anything in particular that, um, is, uh, that they haven't really touched on before. They're, they're like, I, I've mentioned in the last episode that they kind of like are reusing vignettes, but with different characters. And I'm starting to see it's it's very very repetitive at this point as before you just get exposition dumps that were just retelling things that have before now it's going one step beyond it's like all right you're getting scene repetitions but with just different chess pieces in there right that's kind of what i didn't like so i would go there with you and i think that we are starting to really dial in on kind of the left behind formula mm -hmm. these books are always going to be a slave to that formula which is you have to hit tim's notes in his outline, Jerry's the one who's going to get you there, and he's going to do it via some cool moments. Jerry knows how to write the cataclysmic prophetic moments for the most part. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we go back and look at previous episodes and all these books that we've read so far, when the horsemen of the apocalypse are riding, when the robo scorpions come, when the weird Evangelion angel shows up, even in this one, when we have the actual resurrection and indwelling take place. All of that stuff slaps pretty hard. Yeah. Like Jerry does know how to write it in a way that is interesting and engaging. It's the getting to that point where Jerry largely feels like he is kind of either marking time or writing sort of walk and talk type scenes that don't work that ends up being so oppressive and boring. Now, I think that Jerry can write interesting action scenes. I think he can write interesting like stealth and espionage type scenes where there is tension, but they tend to get very repetitive because they follow some of the same beats. There's never really anything to mix them up. And in this one, we had barely any of that anyway. Mm -hmm. Everybody was just kind of fine the whole time. Like people were supposed to be on the run or they were hiding from the GC or bad things were happening. I never felt that tension. Yeah. I can't put my finger on exactly why it was. I should have felt significantly more tension over even something as kind of hard to read as the baby killing stuff. Yeah. But you know, they're not going to do it, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. like, and I think that's a small example of a larger thing that I wanted to illustrate here. The book's called the indwelling, you know, what's going to happen. Yeah. It, so it, there it, is no tension. Like, even though they try to have Zion be like, was I wrong? 
Uh, no, the title of the book says you were not wrong. Mm-hmm. So it does kind of rob much of the book of any tension it might have. I'm going to, I want to bring up a, a, qu- a quick comparison of a book that, where you know what's going to happen at the end, but the tension is still good. It's The Long Walk by Stephen King. Have you ever read that one? I have not. Okay, so basically you find out at the onset of this book that in The Long Walk, it's you have 99 kids that are all supposed to walk until there's only one of them left. And if they stop walking, they get shot. And that book, even though you know, oh, okay, one kid's going to make it out, it's still like a harrowing, like, existential dread the entire way through. Of like, all right, who's going to fall next? Who am I not going to see in the next chapter? And that, and it works there. But I think that that's an important comparison because I would assume, and again, I haven't read this, but I would assume that during that story, you get something of an attachment to different characters. Yeah, you do. And that makes you worry about what's going to happen to them. I would say, and I'm, I don't want to be mean and I don't want to contradict anything that we've said in previous episodes, but if I'm going to be really honest with myself, I think any true attachment that we have gotten to the majority of these characters, not all of them, but the majority of these characters, we have been generous. Yeah, it's okay. So we're making do with what we've got. Like when I say I like Hyam and I like Nikolai, I do. mm -hmm. I actually like Hyam and Nikolai. But when it comes to most of the other characters, I could care less i don't think like deaths have like kind of like hit me in the left behind series like very hit or miss like i was sad when bruce barn died i was sad when loretta died i was sad like no i wasn't even that sad when ken died i was like oh gun guy gone like i, I was kind of like oh but like you know it, it, it didn't really hit like because i can't even like fully remember who all died this book that's how little i care t yeah t okay yeah t t was cool but at the same time it's like and maybe this is an unintentional thing that they're, they're that they're hitting on. I'm not even sure if they're trying, but it's like I don't care because I'll see them in book twelve or thirteen. Yeah, I think that that is again. If we zoom out even further, that's the stone around this series' neck. The conclusion is a foregone conclusion. The good guys in scare quotes win no matter what. Yeah. And they are ostensibly immortal, no matter what. The only people that you can truly empathize with and care for are the people for whom there are eternal stakes. Yeah, like at this- Hyam, Hattie, the undecided. Yeah. And the longer that they remain undecided, there is tension there, especially when they are put in mortal danger. When they're not, or once they stop being undecided- you cease to care. Now, obviously, there is a, an exception to be made for the villains because I'm kind of having to make my own fun here by rooting for the villains sometimes. <laughs> yeah. People will say that, like, how can you like Marvel movies? They're so formulaic. Yeah, but I really dig the characters, man. I like hanging out with them. I like them being there. I like seeing them go on adventures. Yeah. I don't like any of these people. Yeah, it's I all, have to force myself to like these people. Yeah, it's all it's kind of, it kind of goes back to the axiom it's not about the it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. If the journey isn't fun and you already know the destination from the start, it makes it for a bad book experience. And I will go on to say there are more journeys to come for these characters. Mm -hmm. There are more things that they will do. There are more battles they will fight, sometimes literally. 
But in this book, we barely got any of that at all. Yeah. It was just exposition and, like you said earlier, moving the chess pieces to certain places where they need to be. They need to be in the strong building. David needs to see the statue. Hyam and Buck have to get home. Yep. Hyam has to get saved. All of these things were so in service of an overarching plot, which is another kind of Marvel movie style criticism. But unlike those movies, I don't think that these stories are sticking that landing. Did that make me like the ending any less? No, I loved it. I thought that ending was out awesome. I loved it. I loved the fire and the lightning and the devastation and the resurrection and the talking statue. I loved every minute of it. I didn't like having to slog through this entire book to get there. Exactly. And, you know, some of the middle bits were good, too. But it's like, again, like it just felt like filler. Like the my favorite scene in the book probably was when Zion just astral projects and you start getting some of the high supernatural elements where you see um, um, Michael and Gabriel. You get to uh, um, Zion gets to see like the events of, of Revelation happen before him where he sees like the dragon and get killed and shit. That is really, really cool. I, I dug that the entire way through, but then you end that and you you just go back to, uh, man, I uh, I wonder if, I, if Zion's gonna be able to kill my baby and um, them driving. It's, it, it kind of just sucks me out of it to the degree that it's like, all right, I, I don't even care. Yeah. Did the Zion thing feel earned for you? That's supposed to be a big character moment. Like, he has now taken on the role of almost a biblical prophet. Did that feel earned? I, okay, I could, I could look at it from several ways. I, I could say yes, because, well, Zion, he has been leveling his skills through these books. He has been, you know, talking to the world and, like, putting his life on the line with, like, his, uh, his whole ministry. So I could be like, okay. Yeah, in the context of this, it did kind of feel earned, but on the same time, it would have felt more earned if, like, Hyam got this. Didn't he? Did Hyam didn't have, like, an angel thing in this book, did he? He did not. Okay, yeah. It, I think it would have been a little bit more fitting if Hyam got that in this book, because he did just do the most literal, important piece of the tribulation, which was being the figure that literally spearheaded the tribulation into the great tribulation. And see, yeah, I actually do think the assassination on Hyam's behalf was earned. I think that if he was the one getting the visions, one, it's a misdirect because they talk about gifts of the spirit and everything this whole time. Zion has been serving his purpose. Okay, all of a sudden, this new guy who was a complete non-believer beforehand, if he believed in God at all, it was a cultural thing. He mm-hmm. said that to have prescience thrust upon him by God and Everyone around going, well, that's not who we would have expected. Mm-hmm. Do we believe him or is he a crazy old man? We're writing a better book. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, and it's not that I don't like Zion as a character. I mean, he's fine, you know, and he's clearly been through a lot. So it, it could feel earned. I will say put a pin in Hyam again because his journey isn't over. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are going to be things that happen to him. He is still going to be involved in the plot in ways you may or may not expect, so I don't want to spoil anything here. He does get some stuff. I think in an earlier episode, I had said, I think it was the last off the record, that we were going to get a replacement for the two witnesses, and I bet it's it's, it's Haim and Zion, essentially. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, 
Okay, so yet you had your two mystical Jewish characters that get killed off. This seems just like a perfect replacement. I will agree with you that it does seem like a good replacement. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can't spoil anything. The way that the story goes definitely takes that setup into account. Okay. So um, whether it delivers on what I think that you are kind of theory crafting right now, that remains to be seen. I'm going to leave that up to you when you read it. Okay. Another thing that I really kind of have to criticize about this one, and man, I'm trying not to be negative. Like, I I really am going to try to talk at the end about what I did like, but I'm getting real Tribulation Force vibes from this one. Um, I am to a degree, too. So they didn't even give us a lot of Christian doctrine stuff to chew on, mm-hmm. um, at least mainstream Christianity stuff to chew on. We got the visions, and I do want to talk about those in a minute, but we didn't get a whole lot of, you know, this is the way evangelicals think. This is the way that they act. These are the doctrinal points that they believe in. We got way more of global community bad, global community degenerate. You know, like we got a lot of that stuff, and Mm -hmm. that's old by this point. Yeah, we get it. There's a stripper on every street corner. Everyone's doing tarot in the road. You know, just move on with it. The guy building the statue is Harvey Firestein, and he's a flamboyantly gay man, and that's awful. And he burns Bibles in his Satan statue. Of course. Like, at this point, it's kind of boring. Yeah. Like, we've heard it already. We get it. They're bad. I can't ask a book series that is so tied to a dogmatic religious interpretation to do anything interesting yeah on that version of storytelling i could if it wasn't based on tim's outline i could definitely ask that but they're not doing that i feel like so many opportunities are wasted because you cannot develop the other side yeah and i kind of want to talk a little bit about that okay yeah uh, because there's some stuff that's kind of come to my attention over the last uh week or so that i've been sort of mulling over This is another conversation I was having with someone who listens and is still in the church and, you know, is still a believer. I wanted to point out that because this was during the turning of 2000, there was a bit of a rapture disappointment, right? All of this stuff is still definitely out there. You know, we've made, I think as early as episode zero, a reference to like Alex Jones and guys who were kind of in his orbit. Um, people who would be considered like Christian dominionists. Yeah, even to know? a degree, like there's a lot of uh, rapture like stuff that's wrapped up in some QAnon believers as well. Big time, big time. One of the things that I think it's important to realize, though, is that a lot of the Christian dominionist folks out there aren't as tethered to this premillennial dispensationalism that we see in these books. So for review. When we say premillennial, we mean this is the order of events. Rapture happens, tribulation happens, Jesus returns, sets the world right. Yeah. For those out there who believe in post-millennial dispensationalism, basically we are going into the tribulation now or we are experiencing the tribulation now because the world has fallen to degeneracy and humanism, hedonism, they all use different words for it. Yeah. Um, secularism. And then and interfacing like some uh, Mark of the Beast attitudes towards the, you know, the COVID stuff that we're going through. Yeah. And it's always something different. I mean, it yeah. could have been COVID, could have been social security numbers, could have been Apple Pay. <laughs> credit cards. Like, just list it, man. There's always something. Yeah. Um, And again, 
dovetails very nicely with the kind of paranoia and fear-mongering that you get from QAnon grifters, Alex Jones, people like that, Yeah, right? And they all kind of fit into that. So that's the kind of people that we're dealing with here. One of the cruxes of their belief is that while we are currently going through the tribulation, which may not be a literal seven years, that's one of the first things that they'll cite you on that they would disagree with Tim on. Mm -hmm. It's not a literal seven years. And for some of them, they're not even going to question that. Like you say, well, I thought the tribulation was seven years. Eh, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) There's a big amount of hand waving in regardless of which of these camps you're in when it comes to eschatology. But with the post-millennial dispensationalists, the big core belief is that the world is corrupt and we must prepare the kingdom for Christ's return. And we do that by purifying the world as much as we can. Yeah. That's where the whole idea of Christian dominionism comes in. Now, we're going to get threads of this, even though it's counter to Tim's interpretation of prophecy. Literally, it's the converse of it the more that the story goes on. So I'm just going to prep you for those right now. I'll try to make callbacks when we start hitting those points. But the big difference is that there is no new world order necessarily in this case. Um, There is no one world government. There is not even necessarily a singular antichrist, but Christianity is charged to go out there and try to take over, literally claim dominion over politics education, the arts, the economy, you know, all these different things. Um, So a lot of folks that you see getting into politics now that are of the more fundamentalist stripe either are directly tied and funded by groups that believe in this, or they are tangentially related. They spout the same talking points without even being aware of who they are parroting or whose agenda they are pushing. Yeah, kind of like uh, the the majority Taylor Greens. Yeah, oh, Marjorie Taylor Green, big one. I don't think she's a true dominionist. I think she's, I think to coin a phrase, she's kind of a useful idiot. Yeah. In the sense that she is pushing that kind of an agenda. And I think QAnon really lies at the heart of that agenda. Mm-hmm. I think QAnon is a portion of that agenda because when you have a nebulous enemy that is a corrupting influence that must be burned out, that is dominionist thought. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, no, we have to purify this land. It's Warhammer 40K. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Kill the mutant, burn the heretic, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you actually get dominionist movements from across the Christian spectrum. I mean, there's Catholic ones, there's evangelical ones, there's Orthodox ones. Like, it's not unique to evangelicals, but specifically, you get a lot of it in Pentecostals, which is where I grew up. Um, And I was talking to my dad about it. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They sat us down in uh, a church service one time. There was a guy that came in that did a whole talk about how the pre-tribulation rapture was a lie. Um, this was at the height of the Left Behind books, basically saying, Tim LaHaye's a fraud. The pre-tribulation rapture is a lie. You are fooling yourself if you think that we aren't in the tribulation right now. And that's why you need to get your guns and your beans and your bunker and all this stuff and prepare yourself and run for local government and then upgrade and run for state government. And we need to take back this land. Mm -hmm. When we talk about these books and the influence that they've had, I really think we're dealing with a gateway drug here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And I don't know if you've ever encountered any of this kind of fervor in like your communities or your churches when you grew up, or if you guys out there have, but like, I definitely did. 
Now, my parents were just like, mm, yeah, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, if you say so, big guy. Because growing up, it was a lot of, we don't really listen to what man says. We go back to the word of God. Instead, we don't need somebody to like interpret it for us. Mm-hmm. You know, we follow the leading of the spirit, um, which you hear a lot about. But there are definitely forces out there that are pushing this. And it's, it's way more insidious and complex than we have time to get into here now. But I've been doing a lot of looking and a lot of reading over the last couple of weeks, specifically about what it looks like when you are disappointed by the coming rapture and decide that you're going to bring the kingdom of God into existence on your own. Yeah. So I think now's as good a time as any to see if there's anything we can pull out of this outside of that little, you know, tangent that I went on. Mm-hmm. Was there anything that we did like about the book? Like, I know you liked Zion's vision quest. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. So what did that do for you as kind of a fanboy of religion? That's sort of your thing. How are you reading that whole thing? Okay. Did it ring true? Did it not? Was it something that you were like, okay, or was it the opposite? Okay, so let, I, I, let's get into a few different things about it. First, as just a, a fan of like, you know, surrealism and or like magical realism as stuff, that kind of hit on some stuff where like Zion is seeing like an infinite number of like things before him and he's basking before something that he can't even fully comprehend and stuff like that. Cause you're, uh, you're reading the invisibles now, right? Yeah, I'm reading the invisibles. <laughs> so Grant Morrison's really working for you right now. So there's a little bit of that in there. Yeah, there's a, there's a tad of that. And, uh, I have dabbled and this is also that this is going to get into like a big asterisk of like, Hey, uh, I don't know anything. Uh, um, d- do your own kind of uh, stuff on this, but like I've dabbled in like the uh, the astral projection sort of thing, where like you know you do a mantra in your head, and in the absence of uh, of thoughts, your brain kind of fills in a lot of shit, yeah, like right? it's like a, a form of mindfulness, yeah. Yeah, I've done like meditation. Uh, yeah, stuff. I've entered into trance states. Uh, this kind of matches what a trance state feels like in a way. You feel you like your your consciousness like leave your body to a degree. In your mind's eye, you're seeing way too many things to even like really comprehend. It's just a barrage on your senses. Yeah, it, it was accurate. I was kind of like reading like, okay, uh, this kind of uh, this is this is hitting that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that is in a lot of cases kind of a measurable psychological phenomenon. Yeah. It is a form of mindfulness Mm -hmm. and that is a, that's something that can be done, but you're sitting here saying like, it's happening in your head. Yeah, yeah. Like it's not some outside force. It's not God yanking you up by the shirt collar and being like, come and see. Come here. Cause like, all right, (laughs) so I'll talk a little bit. Cause like what happened in a few of them is like one, I could tell, like I'm basically like lucid dreaming while awake. I'm going to become this. I'm going to become this. Oh man. Like I'm going to become a flock of birds. I am a flock of birds. I'm going to become a forest. I am a forest. I'm going to become a mountain. Okay. I'm going to become bigger than the mountain. All right. Now I'm going to like jump off this mountain and I fell down into a pit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that that's without mind altering substances, which I would can attest that that's something very similar when you are tripping, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's letting parts of your brain, like you said, in the absence of thought and being in the moment, fill in stuff that otherwise would be preoccupied with what time is it? I got to look at my watch. Do I have any text messages? I got to drive to work. Yeah. You know, you're sitting there and you're being mindful and you're being in the moment and those kind of experiences can happen, but you're still tethered to reality. You know, you're in your own head right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just pushing away distractions to just sort of like 
see where your brain decides to like remove some clutter. Yeah, and like so, um, uh, I I and I feel maybe Tim has done because okay, so like I'll talk about even the process of how this happens too, and how this might apply to like a more Pentecostal um uh, thing. I don't know if this is how they do it, but if uh, say you just you're repeating the same mantra, like the same few syllables over and over, your brain will then start to do that. Maybe he like reflected on a Bible verse a lot, and he got like a, a similar experience because I'm uh I'd say. I Maybe, I think that's very possible. Yeah, I, I feel like Tim, Tim probably has seen uh, or seen visions from God. You're making quotation marks with your hands right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, seen visions from God. Because like, and also in the moment, they do feel divine if you have that kind of framework. Because during when I had this, it was like, holy shit, I just left my body and I couldn't find my way back. And oh man. But like after a while and just looking at the more psychological phenomena, I started to understand kind of the stuff that's going on when you do that yeah so you mentioned pentecostals Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna kick the door in here and talk about that the repeating of a mantra is definitely something that goes on within pentecostal spirituality yes now they don't call it a mantra they would never be caught dead calling it the name of something that comes from another form of spirituality in the pentecostal tradition typically it is not even a repeated phrase what you find yourself doing a lot of the times, they call it praying in the spirit. Okay, is it? Does this relate to any glossolalia stuff? Super duper does. Okay, here we go. And so what generally happens, because I was having to explain this the other night uh, to someone else, I will explain what the Pentecostals believe is happening and then what is actually going on. Mm-hmm. So the Pentecostal belief, and this comes from the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven. He said, I will send my spirit upon you. Um, I will send you a helper and a comforter. And so the disciples and all of their disciples, because they had gained their own by that point, they went and hung out in an upstairs room after Jesus ascended. And I can't remember how many days it was. It was a certain amount of days. And they stood upstairs in this room that they rented and they just prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they called out to God and they called out to God and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed, right? Like round the clock. Mm-hmm. until something gave and the spirit of God descended upon them and imbued them with those spiritual gifts that we keep talking about throughout the story. It was given physical evidence by flames above their heads. And in fact, if you guys look back through like Sunday school stuff, in a lot of cases, you will see pictures of the 12 apostles praying with little tongues of fire above their head. Um, It's in a lot of children's Bibles and stuff like that. That was the belief. And in that moment, the verse says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Mm -hmm. Now, in that moment, the utility behind speaking in other tongues was that they were in a city, and I think it was Jerusalem, that was pretty cosmopolitan and not everybody spoke Hebrew. Some of them spoke Greek. Some of them spoke Latin. Some of them spoke, you know, all these other languages. And just like in the Left Behind books, the apostles were able to leave that room, go out into the streets and begin preaching and everyone would hear it in their own language. It wasn't that the words were transcribed. It was that the apostles would speak. And if you spoke Spanish and I began speaking to you, I would start speaking Spanish unconsciously. Yeah. So that's the belief. Now, the further that you get into the Pentecostal doctrine For anybody who's ever seen a video on YouTube of speaking in tongues, 
it is what Gavin referred to as glossolalia. It's a lot of gibberish and these weird syllables, and it sounds like they're speaking nonsense. What the explanation is that's going on there is you are not speaking a known language, you are speaking a heavenly language. I can tell you this is stretching credulity for you a little Mm -hmm. bit. Yep, totally. (laughs) Just about like, you you got it. I'm I'm an expert Pentecostal now. Yeah, you're a Pentecostal now, man. I'm going to bring you in and you're going to have to start tithing. Oh, no. Um, (laughs) And, but in practice... Sometimes this stuff is done in the open. Sometimes it is given as a message from God, and then someone else in the congregation will translate it. And just like the glossolalia that it is, oftentimes the translation into English is the same kind of sort of repetitive, so it's like basic it's like, platitudes. It's like Lucky's monologue from uh, from Waiting for Godot, where he's just kind of saying non sequiturs a little bit. It's Yeah, kind of. I'll give you an example. So let's say that someone stands up in the church service and they give the full gibberish thing. Everybody gets quiet and they listen to it. What happens next is there's a long pause and then somebody stands up to give the interpretation. Because if you don't get the interpretation, it's from Satan. Um, <laughs> I, what? No cap. It's from Satan. Um, so <laughs> we could go on about like, wait, aren't we children of God? Aren't we protected? I thought we had God's divine hand of protection on us. Guess not. But I'm not going to get bogged down in that. The interpretation would go a little something like this. Listen, my children, for the Lord your God loves you, and he speaks unto you in these the last days. Fear not, for the Lord God goes before you, and his judgments shall rout your enemies. Though the entire world may stand against you, you stand upon the mountaintop and are protected by the Lord of hosts. He is your shepherd, and shall not he leave his ninety-nine sheep to find the one who has gone astray? Take heart. And know that the Lord is with you. This sounds like an AI just taking bits of the Bible. Like, it's like he fed an AI the Bible and it's giving you doctrine. That is exactly what it is. It's literally just someone saying stuff that sounds Bible-ish and it says nothing. Yeah. Like it's just a general message of like encouragement and uplifting No one ever says, listen, my children from the first congregation Pentecostal church in Wayne County, Alabama, God knows you're on hard times. Go dig in the back 40 and you're going to find some gold to pay the rent for the church. It's never anything specific. (laughs) It's never anything that solves any problems. It's never anything that actually like gets anything done. It's just general pablum. Mm -hmm. But there's also a more personal expression of praying in tongues or praying in the spirit. And that's what happens. And this is again, what the Pentecostals believe is they're big on emotion. So as you are praying, you become so overcome with emotion and with your connection to God and your closeness to God that you run out of words. Like you're left speechless before God, your words are not enough. So God kind of puts his hand on your shoulder and he helps you along because you don't know what to pray for, but he does. So he allows you to be the mouthpiece and begins putting those heavenly words in your mouth. So often if you were to observe a Pentecostal person deep in prayer, they would switch back and forth between English that's coming from them and then the glossolalia that is coming from God, the Mm -hmm. gibberish syllables that are coming from God. Now, there's been plenty of research on this that it has been debunked. 
It's not a language. They re- just repeat the same syllables often over and over, which has that mantra-esque effect to put someone in a type of trance or a type of high mindfulness state like you were describing. It really does feel like an ecstatic experience. Yeah. I have done it. Like, I've been there. I've done it. Um, so I can attest to the fact that it really does feel real. Yeah. Um, and a lot of this stuff does. So that that's kind of your idea of, of speaking in tongues and praying in the spirit and mm-hmm. all that. So when we look at the experience that Zion goes through, even though these books don't have any reference to speaking in tongues other than the very Book of Acts style instances that happen with the witnesses, but that same kind of psychological phenomenon where you feel a supernatural closeness with God is something that is very often practiced by Pentecostals. So there's your firsthand experience right there. And it's wild, dude. Yeah. Like it, and having done more mindfulness meditation and stuff like that in my own life for my own mental health since then, with the spirituality element excised out of it, I can still mark those feelings. Yeah. And go, oh, that's what it was. And like it it's interesting because like I'm looking at like the the mindfulness meditation stuff. It does depend like what you experience at these does kind of like it's an as above so below thing. Like stuff that's going on in your life will translate to this in like a weird surreal way. So remember like when I first started doing this um, uh, I was still having like, this is where like I was revisiting a lot of this rapture doctrine. So a lot of, uh, it was kind of triggering some, a little bit of fear that is left over from how some of this stuff was taught to me. And literally one of my visions was I see this, the, uh, Jesus comes down in this mindfulness meditation and goes, Hey, I've come free my child. I'm like, are you really Jesus? And then it turns into the devil and goes, I am Satan. I am Satan. I'm like, whoa, okay. I, uh, that, and that's like the only time that's happened. I got a real question for you. Uh, how, what drugs were you on at the time? Any? Actually, okay. So I may, it may have been just weed, but I could have been sober. Okay. All right. So we weren't, we weren't on acid at the time. No, 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 no. So cause, I, cause the, I didn't see sudden, nightmare, nightmare, nightmare. The sudden change felt very much like an acid trip. You know what it was, though? It, 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 I think it was. It was relying on the piece of biblical code or, like, where people will try to imitate Jesus. So I'm like, and, like, they can't, like, if you ask their Jesus, they can't tell they you can't yes. They can't tell you yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so yeah, that's yeah. where that came from. You test spirits, yeah. Yeah. That's another thing in there that, that they definitely believe. All right, dude. So we got to bring this on home because we're actually going over a little bit. Um, I want to talk about the ending. How'd the ending hit you? The end of, uh, of assassins, uh, like just felt like just a perfect segue into, uh, indwelling. The end of indwelling just goes perfectly into the mark. It hit the hammer on the, on a good climax and just, it felt satisfying. It was the light at the end of the tunnel of something that I actually cared about that I think was pulled off kind of well. I think it was all right. Um, It wasn't Assassin's for me. I think it was okay. I definitely am always rooting for Nikolai, so I'm glad he's back in whatever form that he happens to be in. I'm glad they are back. (laughs) Can we call him a they now? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a they. It's like a Venom. It's more like a Venom situation, you know? I'm glad they're back, but I think... After the resurrection, I think the book overstayed its welcome. It is kind of, uh, it is kind of absurd. I was kind of given the, the, okay, wrap it up. Guys, 
wrap it up. Yeah, because they do like they they do kind of milk that ending for a while. That's what I'll say. And they about keep it. cutting back to the safe house stuff, and I'm like, this should have been wrapped up already. Wrap it up. Yeah, like, we, we're done here. The indwelling has occurred. Let's be done. I will say it does get absurd after he comes back because then it, it we are literally dealing with a Power Rangers villain that is electroshocking people and be like, ha, 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 worship am, me or die. I, mean, I wasn't not into that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I love the talking statue. I love the talking Bible burning statue. That is such a cartoonish campy, like you said, Power Rangers villain. That was, I wanted it to start walking around and like doing more stuff. Like I wanted it to be like a big mech. Like I really shadow of the Carpathia. Yeah. 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 Like a big old shadow of the Colossus, you know? Um, I wanted that, but like, I I'm asking too much. Yeah. Really? So speaking of endings, we got to come to the ending of this episode and it's time to give a rating. Okay. So if we are going to rate the indwelling, remember our scale is out of, Four horsemen, I'm going to let you go first. What are you going to rate the indwelling the beast takes possession? Okay, so I've been kind of mulling on this one. I've, I've been thinking about it the entire time. I think I gave, like, Soul Harvest and Nikolai around the three, the 3.5 side. I'm going to give this a 2.5. Okay. 2.5. Yeah, that is, it, it, it did, it was no tribulation force. And I, I almost, uh, I was going to give it like a 1.5 to the two range. But after reflecting on it, I, I want to say that I'm getting 2.5 because I feel there was more good than bad in the book. However, I'm giving it that low over just, it's, it's just over the median of more good than bad because the bad parts really, they, they stunk. They stunk yeah, extra hard. They did. And that's going to lead into my rating. Okay, what you got? So, as I said, I liked parts of the ending. I also liked parts of Zion's visions. Um, we talked about that. Like, there are parts of that visionary sequence that I don't like. Um, but that's more on Tim and his interpretation. I think it was okay. Okay. Um, I think the ending was pretty good. It was mostly because parts of it were just reveling in the evil, and that was fun. But the rest of this book just did not do it for me. I was bored more often than I was engaged. And when I find myself, even at the ending where it's supposed to be the climax of the story, wanting to either move it along or just end it right there, I got to be honest and say, I didn't like it. So I'm going to give it a little extra bump because of the ending and because of the high strangeness of Zion's vision. But I got to give this a one. Point five. Okay, it's down there low for me, man. I'm I'm disappointed. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna knock a, a point five off of mine and give it down to a two, just because of the uh, uh, thinking about it. There there wasn't more good than bad. It was about equal, I would say. Okay. Okay. So that's I'm gonna deduct that. You're gonna go down to a two. Yeah. Just go All right. Down so to a two, two and a one point five. Mm-hmm. You guys went on this journey with us, so from me to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> But we can't end this episode yet because we got to give a prelude to our next book. Oh, here we go. The thing that you've seen like on every like Facebook meme about COVID vaccines and they're going to put biochips in your penis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I don't know where that one came from. You know what? I don't care. It was great. And that got me. All right. So we were going to begin next episode with book number eight, The Mark, The Beast Rules the World.
His Excellency, Global Community Potentate Nikolai Carpathia, is back. Resurrected and indwelt by the devil himself, the beast tightens his grip as ruler of the world. Terror comes to the believers in Greece as they are among the first to face the benignly named but hideous guillotine death contraption, the loyalty enforcement facilitator. The gloves are off, and the battle is launched between the forces of good and evil for the very souls of men and women around the globe. Well, that just kind of gives it away, huh? Yep. <laughs> Guillotines, dude. We're going we French Guillotine. Revolution. Oh, yeah, we're going. At, and don't think for a second that the use of the guillotine does not have, like, coded anti-leftist stuff in it. Mm -hmm. Like, exactly. it absolutely does. Like, you got to remember that these John Birch guys and these, like, anti-communist guys, like these Illuminati guys, really actually believe some real Assassin's Creed bullshit that the French Revolution was also orchestrated by the Illuminati as a way to, like, attack and dethrone God. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. It's some real, like, yeah, they believe this. So that is a 100% deliberate use. We're going to get to that and unpack it when we get there in the next book and the next series of episodes here on I Survived the Rapture. Thanks again for hanging out with us. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time... Don't try to become light when you astral project or you'll fall into hell. Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSaurus Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSaurus.com and check out the IndieSaurus Discord. We'll see you there. And thanks for listening. He can tempt you and leave.